0: Hi everyone, Mike Lester here from Farm Equipment Magazine. Thanks for joining us for How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs, now sponsored by Osmundson Manufacturing. Today you'll get the down low on Kirby Manufacturing through the voice of third generation owner Rick Kirby, and hear about this cattle feeding equipment manufacturer in
1: California. Talking with my wife Dana in 2009, we decided to put an offer into the family to buy the company in the dairy market. <laughs> <laughs> went home and looked Dana and I and said, what the heck did we just do? Got the staff together and said we can do this two ways. And so we went through a period of there where we had some 32-hour work weeks and everybody shared a little bit less in their check, but we kept everybody employed, kept everybody's health insurance paid, and weathered that storm.
0: That's Rick Kirby describing the day right after buying the business that he gathered up the employees together to convey a plan for getting everyone through a struggling dairy market and how they'd do it together. I learned a lot I didn't know about Rick's business, and it was fun for me personally to sit down and conduct some actual business with another friend made through the Farm Equipment Manufacturers Association. No matter what's happening with milk prices, this California boy can always be counted on for a laugh and a smile, and he's equally adept at bantering and needling others too. True story about this guy Rick. Following a volley of trash-talking text messages about his San Francisco Giants versus My Milwaukee Brewers, we discovered we were just miles away from each other in Washington, D.C. I promptly weaseled my way into a meal with he and the Kirby girls at the old Ebbett Grill, and then also into the backseat of his rental car during his summer vacation. That'll teach him to late-night text. Thanks to the expertise of our audio engineer, Joe Kinsley, we kept Rick's behavior in check and stayed on point for you here today, for the most part, anyway. Let's get going. Here's Rick Kirby of Kirby Manufacturing talking about his
1: equipment business for dairies and cattlemen. We're a manufacturer of cattle feeding equipment primarily. TMR mixers for dairy and beef operations. Started out in 1946 in manufacturing and over the years have just kind of added onto the product line with manure spreaders and uh, different types of hay feeding equipment for the larger mid-sized, big bales, and some other associated products that complement our feeding equipment and things that dairymen and, and beef ranchers need on their operations.
0: I think you're the first in our podcast series to be from the Republic of California. So tell us a little bit about where you're located and the markets that you serve from.
1: Merced. Usually when I'm outside of California, I I usually say that I'm involved with agriculture and it usually gets me a little warmer reception than stating I'm from California. But we're located in Merced, California, right in the heart of the Central Valley there, right in the middle of all the agriculture. Very diverse agricultural area, not just corn. I don't know of any soybean farmers in California, but there's a lot of dairy operations, a lot of row crop farming, and permanent crops, such as almonds and pistachios and wine grapes, raisin grapes, fresh market grapes, a lot of different products. So it was the place where my great-grandfather settled, when he moved the family out from Missouri in the 30s. My great-grandfather went to university in Missouri and uh, worked for International Harvester out of college. Traveled around the Midwest helping uh, set up dealerships and working with the dealers. Made a trip out to California and thought it was a pretty nice place and sent home for his family and moved everybody out. He had five children. My grandfather, Tom, was the youngest of the five, and he was the only one that was born in California. The rest of them came from just north of Springfield, Missouri, in a little town called Dadeville and and Bolivar. What year would that have been when they went west, Dust Bowl area? When they came to California, they settled in Visalia for a short time, and then a job opportunity came up in Merced, about 100 miles north, and he took that opportunity and moved there and worked for a of a local hardware but farm supply type store and then he set up a a dealership for himself in town selling minneapolis Moline tractors and uh, some other short lines in the late 30s my grandfather and his brother they worked in the farm dealership assembling tractors when they came in uh, assembling the implements and working in the dealership and became familiar with the machinery and then when world war ii broke out both of my grandfather and my great uncle went off to fight in the pacific And when they came back from the war, my grandfather had worked in the shipyards helping build Liberty ships and whatnot. And so he's quite a welder. Then he went off into the Pacific and first joined up with the Marines. And then they figured out that he lied about his age and they kicked him out (laughs) because he wasn't 18 yet. And then a few months later when he did actually turn 18, the Marines wouldn't take him back in because he lied on his application. And so he joined the army and they accepted him. And so he did a stint in World War II in the army. So when he came back, him and his brother went back to work for their father and started building small implements and selling them through their dad's tractor dealership. And so that's what the manufacturing kind of spun off of. And that was in 1946 when they founded Kirby Manufacturing off of the Kirby Implement Company. How common was it back in that day for a dealership to also make and brand some of their own equipment? Was that common? Not that I'm aware of. I think more of the small farm equipment manufacturers started out from farmers building their own equipment and then starting to sell it to their neighbors. Whereas my grandfather and his brother started building equipment from their background working with their father's equipment dealership. In 1949, one of their friends, local dairyman, said he was a little tired of pitchforking hay and uh, hauling in green chop and wagons and doing all the feeding manually. So they developed the first self unloading forage wagon and they would pull it behind the tractor and chopper and blow the green chop alfalfa into the wagon and then disconnect from the chopper and they pull the wagon in and go along feed the cattle with the the green chop in 1949 was the first one and it saved a lot of labor the first one didn't have a pto on it they powered it with a wisconsin gas engine because the tractor that the farmer had didn't have a pto on it and so he go and fire up the gas engine and run and jump on the tractor before it left too big of a pile of feed <laughs> before he got going down the feed manger. And uh, we we had that original wagon in our yard today. In 1995, I bought it back from the family. They still had the first Kirby feed wagon. Okay. And so we bought it, restored it, and gave it to my great uncle for Christmas that year. That was fun. So that was a major innovation in, in California at the time? Yes. Yep. It uh, retired a lot of pitchforks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the Central Valley, their dairies were pretty prevalent, a lot of small dairy farms, and so the wagon took off, and pretty soon, they maintained the, the tractor dealership for a few years after that, and as the manufacturing grew and kind of took over, Minneapolis Moline was bought out by White, and they were consolidating Oliver and what have you. The local Oliver dealer took over the dealership, and uh, my grandfather and my great-uncle Bill focused on manufacturing at that point. And then over what period did you unleash the other products? In the 50s, there was some uh, development of new products. They developed a manure spreader. They did a self-propelled manure spreader. We did some dry chop wagons, and they just really improved on the feed wagon as well, increasing the size and capabilities of it. That carried them into the 60s. We did a lot of little subcontracting along the way as well. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, we made bomb shelters. And uh, there's still a few of those in the ground and residences around. And then in the early '70s, started working on developing the feed mixers with the uh, three auger mixer, and, and which progressed into a four auger mixer. And we developed the first feed mixer that you could drop baled hay directly into the mixing chamber without having to break it up or, or process it, grind it before you you mix it, and that's when the, the TMR rations came out. Most of the other manufacturers that were building similar equipment, you had to run it, the hay bale to a hay grinder before you put the hay in the, in the ration in the mixer. And our machine was able to take the bale hay directly into the mixer. So it eliminated a piece of equipment for the, the farmers. Mm-hmm. And we built a hay grinder ourselves as well early on, but we always tell people that they really didn't need a hay grinder if they bought a Kirby mixer but uh, we still built them for the, the customers that had the brand X, Y, and Z. Tell us if someone walked into your facility
0: today, kind of visually bring someone into the plant here.
1: Yeah, so Merced's a small town. When I was growing up, it was under 20,000 people. Now it's just over 80,000. The typical Central Valley town that's got an uh, agronomy-based economy. Car dealerships sell a lot of pickups because of the farmers. But We do have a new University of California campus in town, so the dynamics of Merced are changing, but back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it was primarily a farming town. The original storefront was on uh, G Street, and then when Highway 99 was improved and came through town, they uh, took the land and, and made a freeway overpass out of it. And that was in the early 50s, and my grandfather and his brother bought some land outside of town where our current location is. We've got about 15 acres there. Currently have about by close to 50,000 square feet of manufacturing space. The original building on that land is still there. It's our main office. And then everything is just kind of grown off from from that. So the older buildings are somewhat of a, a maze, <laughs> not very efficient with product flow, but uh, we've put up some newer buildings that uh, we can expand on and, and work with for future production. So our parts department, when you first pull into the place, kind of an old Western looking building and you walk in and it's got uh, kind of the the old flair to it still. Got an old Minneapolis Moline tractor sitting in the parts department, kind of paying homage to my great grandfather. Some old signage, some old photographs of as the company grew and what have you. And we're one big family there. We've got uh, 65 employees, have quite a few people that have been with us for over 20 years. Some have been with us over 30 years and even a couple that have hung on for over 40 years. So we've, we've got a good close knit group that uh, really takes care of our customers and i think that's what's really helped our company succeed over the years is the russian ships we've built with our customers and being there for them when they needed us from the service aspect having a product that satisfied the need that they had
0: mm-hmm. tell us what kind of uh, production equipment manufacturing equipment that we'll find inside your facility
1: when you got into the shop some of the older buildings Lower ceilings, uh, not a lot of clear height, so we use part of our front shop for service and repairs. In California, we act as our own dealer and sell direct to the customer. Um, outside of California, we use a dealer network. So within California, we'll take trades, we'll refurbish them. Some of the local farmers will bring their equipment in, we'll refurbish them, repair them, send them back out. We have a fleet of service trucks that will go out on the farm and service and, and repair the equipment as well. Once you get past the service department, we've got some of our sheet metal working machinery, some press brakes, shear, CNC plasma cutter, high definition plasma, some uh, presses to form our auger flighting, and then some several welding stations to assemble augers. Adjacent to that is our engineering office, and then adjacent to that is uh, what we call a prefab area. And we do a lot of small sub-assemblies, so there's a lot of different jigs and things that come in and out of there as work orders come through and they'll make small part runs or individual runs depending on what products are being built in the assembly shops. We have really technical names for these shops. It's front shop, back shop, mixer shop. (laughs) Clear. Yeah, Yeah. so uh, in the back shop uh, is where we used to do our feed wagon production later in life when we were really putting out a lot of wagons, building them one right after the other in the 70s. But again, that building has low ceilings, crane capacities are low. We have like 11 foot six under the, the hook on the cranes. So as the mixers were starting to be developed and we started assembling those in that shop, uh, we started to run out of room because the capacity of these things, just the equipment got larger and heavier and we found ourselves having to pull some of the stuff outside to complete them and drop the augers inside the, the finished product. So that drove the need for the future and we put up a new building 2000 and it's got 10-ton bridge cranes in it. We've got about 23 feet clear height under the hook of the cranes. And that building's designed to go out at least four times the size that it is now. And so that's where any future expansion is gonna take place is on that building. Now in that back shop, we build our big bell feeders, uh, the manure spreaders, and then our bulk delivery boxes. And these bulk delivery boxes are equipment that we use in the beet industry. They'll Feed mills at these feed lots will drop the finished ration into them, and they go out to the pens and feed the cattle. And then we also use them in the uh, dairy industry, where some of the larger herd dairies will have stationary mixers, and they'll use these bulk delivery units to go out and feed the finished ration to the, the cattle pens. So we we move quite a few of those. The newer shop, the mixer shop, is where we do all the assembly on the on the feed mixers, and they're trailer mounted pulled behind a tractor, we'll mount them on truck chassis, we do uh, stationary models as well. And so that's kind of the walkthrough. We'll
0: get back to the story of Kirby Manufacturing in just a moment, but first a quick word about our new sponsor, Osmondson Manufacturing, which supported our time, travel, and production in bringing these stories of family farm equipment manufacturers to you. Osmondson is a leader in the tillage tool business with a storied history of its own dating back to 1903. In fact, CEO Doug Bruce is also the subject of a How We Did It podcast as the fourth generation owner to lead the Perry, Iowa Company. Visit them at www.osmondson.com. And now, back to Rick Kirby for more on the Kirby manufacturing story. When you first went to market with your own product, was it direct to dairyman or was it uh, yeah, through we Yeah,
1: we've primarily grown our business dealing direct with the end user. My great-uncle was more of the salesperson in the in the company and my grandfather was more of the engineer production person. Things were slow or they had a little extra inventory. My great-uncle would hook onto one of the wagons and tow it around until he sold it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he'd go over the hill and go into Nevada and Arizona and Oregon, Washington, Idaho and... He'd hook onto a wagon, he'd take off on the road, and wouldn't come back till it was sold. Mm-hmm. And so he had a lot of, a lot of good stories. My, uh, my grandfather died young, he was 50, died in 1974. And uh, my father also passed away young, and uh, my great uncle ran the company for a lot of years. And when I graduated from college in 89, mm-hmm. came back to work for the company full time, that's when he and I really got to work together and get to know each other a lot better. And uh, I cherished the moments that, you know, that we, we were together and, and were able to, to, he'd share a lot of stories, so. And this is Bill? Bill, yeah. Okay. And uh, anyway, he'd, he'd tell me just some off the wall things that, you know, that such as driving off and the wagon wouldn't come home until it was sold. And he said one time he pulled into a potential customer's place and told the customer that the radiator was overheating on his truck and wouldn't mind if he'd just left the wagon overnight and for a couple of days so he could drive to the truck back home without the load and get the radiator fixed and come back and get it. And the dairyman would joke, well, it might not be as clean. You know, mm-hmm. the wagon might, might not be as clean as when you get back as it is now. And he'd say, no, you know, I appreciate you. Let me drop it off. You know, go ahead and use it. And he said he sold a lot of wagons that way about this Faulty radiator yeah. <laughs> that really wasn't faulty, and it was just an excuse to drop a wagon off yeah. and let the customer demo it for a couple of days. And more likely than not, when he came back, they they would make a deal.
0: A no-pressure uh, demo. Yeah. <laughs> approach,
1: right? Yeah. So it was harmless. Boy, that, that guy's
0: got a, a faulty pickup truck. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you know, he told me one time they bought a new baker pickup, and their their dad was still around and, and helping them out. And he said his. his Dad got mad at him because it had a heater in the pickup, and his dad was afraid that, you know, cold days and whatnot, that he wouldn't want to get out of the truck and go talk to customers. He'd want to stay in the truck with the heater. So, mm-hmm. and this conversation came up probably after we just bought some new sales trucks, and you know, maybe had a CD player or something in it. <laughs> 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 so, uh, very much a believer in eyeball to eyeball, getting out of the truck. Oh yeah, working alongside that that dairyman. Yep. He told me one time he was at lunch in town on a Friday and he ran into one of his competitors and the competitor was bragging that he just sold a tractor and a baler to one of their customers and my, my uncle said that he had had a quote out to that same customer and thought, well, that's too bad and the competitor was just kind of bragging about the sale. Yeah, we're going to take that new tractor out to him on Monday and, and get him all set up and my uncle said, oh, well, congratulations and he said he went back to the shop and called up the Minneapolis Moline Distributor, the main distribution point in Stockton, California, and they had the tractor they needed, they had the baler they needed, so he went up there and picked them up in the truck, and they worked all Friday night getting everything set up and was out at the customer's place early Saturday morning and ran the baler around a couple rounds in the field and made a deal with the guy and got the check and went on home, and his competitor called him up on uh, Monday a little upset when he went out to deliver the product, and there was a brand new Moline sitting there, and a Moline <laughs> baler, and so my uncle told me because you know it's never a done deal until the money's in the bank. So yeah. that was yeah. that was one of the little lessons I learned. Yeah,
0: all's fair in machinery sales. That's right? Right. right. There was a story that you shared earlier that I'd like to ask you about, and it, it has to do with the uh, technique that your
1: great uncle had for selling manure spreaders. That was my my great grandfather, and my great uncle shared the story with me, but. He said that he was having a hard time convincing this uh, farmer the advantages of spreading manure and, and manure as a fertilizer, and uh, the farmer just wouldn't wouldn't listen to him. He said, i tell you what, let me go out and spread a load of manure on your field here that you just planted, and we'll uh, see what happens. I'm not going to tell you where I spread it, but we'll see when the crop comes in if you can see a difference in, in an area. And so farmer agreed to it, and my great-grandfather got on the tractor and went out there and Spread the shape of a dollar sign in the field, and so a few months later, and I don't know if it was oats or wheat or what have you, it was was coming up, and you could tell where the, the manure had been spread because the crop was higher in that area because it gotten a little bit more nitrogen fertilizer and that sold the customer. So mm-hmm.
0: yeah. <laughs> You didn't expect to see a dollar sign. No, so it.
1: the customer equated, yeah, there's there's more <laughs> more forage there. And it uh, equates to more, more money. So mm-hmm. that's been kind of a fun story to tell. he just have crazy little stories about uh, he was a smoker, my uncle, and uh, that he'd roll his own cigarettes because he didn't want the customer thinking that he, he had too much money and could afford, you know, mm-hmm. I guess factory cigarettes or whatever they call them, the, the pre-rolled ones. But he would roll his own and <laughs> yeah. in front of the customer and, so he could show that he was a little frugal. Right, this is your great-uncle Bill? Yeah, great-uncle Bill. What are some other things that
0: he had passed on to you when you're running the business and in that way because of those lessons today?
1: Uh, probably the, the most important thing is to take care of your customer. And if you're gonna tell them you're gonna do something, you do it. And one of the first lessons I had of that was we had let a customer down, and I can't even remember what the reason was, but uh, it was something I had done or failed to do. And it wasn't anything big. And I talked to the customer on the phone, but when I told my uncle about it, and he goes, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, well, what do you mean, am I get, what am I going to do about it? He says, well, I think you still need to do one more thing. And I said, what's that? He said, you need to go buy him a box of C's candy and drive out there, and you give him that box of candy, and you apologize to him in person. I said, well, I've already talked to him on the phone. He said, no, you need to go see him. Yeah. It was so minor, I couldn't even tell you what the problem was. Yeah, But... I went down, bought a, <laughs> a box yeah. of seized candy, and drove out to the customer. And to this day, that was probably pushing 30 years ago. To this day, I still have a relationship with that customer. And uh, he even brings it up that that made an impression on him. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, none of us are perfect. And I try and instill that in our sales staff and, and our service people and everything else that, you know, those people are relying on you. And if we can't take care of them, then our competitor probably will. Mm -hmm. So we're out there to take care of them. And like I said, we've got a lot of really good people working for our company, a lot of dedicated people. Our service manager, B. Vang, he's been with us for over 30 years now. And uh, when he was on a service truck, the service guys will go through a rotation because we have a 24-hour on-call line. So Sunday morning at 3 a.m., somebody's feeding their cows and the feed's not coming out of the mixer. They can call and somebody will be out there to take care of it. You know, help them keep the cows fed. So one day the the guys are sitting around and uh, talking about things, and and B brought up that he had gotten married last weekend. And one of the service guys said, well, wait a second, you were on call last weekend. He said, yeah. He said, didn't you go out and fix, you know, Joe Smith? And he said, yeah, I did. I said, well, that was your wedding day. He said, yeah. He left his own wedding and went and took care of a customer wow. and came back to the wedding. Wow. He's still married too. That's yeah. why <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't complain. He didn't make a big deal about it. He just yeah. took care of the customer. Yeah. Wow. It's strong culture. Yeah. So he's he's a good guy. So anyway, but we've got a lot of good people like that working with the company and it makes me rest easy when I'm away from the, the shop that I know things are getting taken care mm-hmm. of and that people treat Customers is their own, and and uh, the company is their own. Yeah. You're away from the shop a great deal. I, I get on the road quite a bit, and so we have our distribution, uh, we do about 50% of our business in California. Uh, about 25% of it is the rest of the United States, but primarily in the, the West, and then about 25% of our business is export. We do have a little joint venture down in Torreon, Mexico, a company called Kirby Mex partners with the Braña family, and their New Holland. Uh, They have a chain of new Holland stores down there, and one of the sons is an engineer, and we worked with him in developing Kirby and and he's done a really good job of that down there. So we'll fabricate everything in Merced, ship it down to Torreon, and then he'll do the final assembly, and then distribute it through his family's tractor dealerships.
0: So you've been exporting for decades now, right?
1: Yeah, so early on, sold a few wagons into Mexico along the border. Canada occasionally selling something up there. But really kind of what opened our eyes to the opportunities of exporting was in the 70s, Nixon opened up relations with China again and one of our first big exports was some equipment in the late 70s to China. And we used to build hay cubing equipment. We'd incorporate the John Deere cubing head, but we would build all the conveying metering systems to feed the the cuber and these were all primarily stationary units when cubing was popular and we developed one that was portable so they could move it around to different locations in China but they basically fed it by hand and I remember I was fairly young we had a representative from the company that purchased the machine come over from China and it's probably around 1978 and he wanted us to prove to him that we could feed this machine so Me and some of the guys from the shop went out to one of the local cubing installations. They brought over a load of dry chopped alfalfa sitting there and we loaded that thing with pitchforks and and ran the cuber for him and uh, he was satisfied and signed off on it and we shipped it to China. From that point on then we we, uh, started working with uh, other people as leads came on and relationships developed, but a lot of our export leads came out of the World Ag Expo in Tulare. We're one of the founding exhibitors of that show. It's opened up a few markets to us. So one of our biggest markets is Japan. We sell quite a bit of equipment there each month. And uh, we have one distributor, uh, Nasu Agro service and they have a sales staff scattered through the throughout the country and, and service staff, and they do a really good job representing our product. And they can basically sell you a turnkey dairy. Mm. So they'll sell the feeding equipment, the feed, genetics, They can build a milk barn for you, whatever you need. It's a really nice organization to work with. Another big market for us is the Middle East. We deal direct with a couple of the larger dairy farms in Saudi Arabia. And then we also have a distributor, it's a French company called ICS. They work with our product with other Saudi customers and other customers in the Middle East. So we've been into Egypt and United Arab Emirates, Pakistan, we've sold stuff into Australia, Philippines, Taiwan, South Korea, quite a few
0: places. Because of the the size of the dairy industry in the state of California, does that show and a lot of these uh, foreign dairies come to California
1: to benchmark and that's how they are seen? Yes. As time went on, as the the larger dairy herds became more of the the model, the modern dairying model, um, those herds were developed in the West because of our nice weather, availability of different feedstuffs. Don't have to fight the Wisconsin winters. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure there's, you know, we, we would produce more with less. And, uh, but it was just because of our climate and the and the feedstuffs available. But now with the onset of cross ventilation barns and whatnot, you're seeing more and more of the larger commercial herds in the Midwest as well. But with that being said, our equipment developed as a commercial duty, larger capacity piece of equipment. and. That was one of our big advantages over some of our competition that developed their equipment in the Midwest or Canada because they were catering to the smaller dairy herds and they would take their existing design and just try and make it bigger, but we developed our design as a larger machine and could handle the, the stresses and everything that accompanied with the, the larger rations.
0: Hope you're enjoying the interview so far. Here's a quick word about another project from our editors here at Leicester Media that you want to make sure you're subscribed to. Hi, I'm Kim Schmidt of On The Record. Prepared by the editors of Ag Equipment Intelligence, our On The Record is a short form podcast you can take
2: in during a cup of coffee. Released twice a month, this 10 minute podcast summarizes all the important news you need to know as it's happening in the North American farm machinery biz. Search
0: Ag Equipment Intelligence on your favorite podcast station. And now back to Mike and the Farm Equipment Podcast. You can characterize the products that you're in. It, it's a definable niche. You're, you're very much dairy. You haven't gone
1: very far outside what your core is, at least from my perspective. Correct. And we've always thought, you know, do best with what you do best, and you know, we've used that same philosophy over the years. But it hasn't kept us from looking outside. Um, we distribute Duratec's product, the Haybuster, because it, it's a complementary piece of equipment mm-hmm. to the same customer base that we have. We also, manufacture the easy rake, it's a silage facing rake um, that was developed by Riverview, Riverview Farms in uh, Minnesota, and Hanson Silo owns the, the rights on that rake now, but we have a licensing agreement, and we produce that in the west. So it's another complimentary item to what we're, what we're doing. We've done some contract manufacturing over the years. We had some engineers that we worked with, and we developed some aircraft maintenance vehicles hmm and uh, united airlines was one of our big customers got a contract with them and that was successful in the meantime we started working with british airways and we're working on a contract with them and the air force approached us this was in 1997 and we built two these vehicles for air force one and it was when president clinton had a little misstep in florida and twisted his knee or something they realized they didn't have a Nice way of getting a dignitary on and off Air Force One because they always had to park it outside away from a terminal for security reasons. Mm -hmm. So you always see the president and whoever else going up and down the stairs. They wanted a truck, it's like the size of UPS trucks, but it scissor lifts up to the aircraft and then had a nice interior with seats and it was able to be driven in an elevated position as well. So um, United Airlines bought them from us to do the maintenance of the cleaning of the airplanes in between the turns. Mm -hmm. So as the passengers are deplaning, there's a cleaning crew coming in the back door and -hmm. and, uh, the driver of the existing trucks would have to stay down at the chassis and it becomes a just wasted motion. Whereas with our design, the driver then became part of the cleaning crew and didn't have to get out Mm -hmm. and go up some stairway and fight in the crowd, going against traffic and what have you. Air Force, two of these vehicles and set them up for the dignitaries so they, they didn't have to come down the steps in the rain and we've seen it used a couple times on CNN. First time I saw it being used was when uh, the Afghanistan war started and the CIA agent Michael Spann, I believe his name was, was uh, killed in action over there and, and when they brought his body home they used our truck for the honor guard to, to bring the casket off of the transport plane. So that made me feel good that we had a little piece of history there and I mean, we've done kind of offshoots of that here and there, but always fall back to doing what we do well mm-hmm. you know, and taking care of the dairy business and some of our opportunities of growth right now has just mainly been with uh, the beef industry. There's a lot of complementary things between our TMR mixers and our bulk delivery units. For feeding dairy cows, this flow right over naturally into the beef industry and we can tweak some speeds and feeds on the machines a little bit to to make them work for the different rations.
0: we got a pretty good cross-section listening to a podcast like this, but there'll be a lot of dealers listening in who may not have understood that your company got its start as a dealership in in Missouri. So if you could just kind of tell us about what you know about the dealership's history before evolving into the manufacturing.
1: Yeah. so. Like I said, my great-grandfather was uh, involved with International Harvester out of college, and he had made a trip out to California and enjoyed the the scenery and weather out there and decided to move his family out and then started looking for opportunities and started working for a farm supply. And then the opportunity came up for uh, developing his own dealership for Minneapolis Moline. Um, He carried Gale, Fox Choppers, they had Massey Ferguson for a time, a lot of allied lines and, and whatnot. And just developing those relationships with uh, customers and really strived and, and instilled the service aspect in, into our family and into his sons, my great grandfather and my great uncle. And then that was instilled in me as well. So that's really important part of who we are is uh, being able to take care of the customer. And I think that's why we've really grown, especially in California, um, is because we work with the customer. We understand their needs. We understand that they're broke down at 3 a.m. on a Sunday and need to feed the cows, that they look to you for help and you got to be there to, to help them. We understand the, the need to, for profitability on the dealer's end as well. So we, we protect them with the territories and, and whatnot and help them generate leads. Uh, we have staff that works with the dealers and their sales staff so they, the salesman can better understand our product and, and help them go out and close deals as well. Uh, We've had a long-time relationship. Some of our dealers are John Deere, Case IH, um, some independent, and uh, we've worked well with all of them, from a small guy that has one service truck but has a good relationship with the local dairyman, and we partner up with him to represent our equipment, all the way to uh, some of the larger dealership groups like Stoats Equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, They've been a, a good dealer of ours for quite a few years, and we appreciate them, and We've been able to help them sell quite a few of our pieces of equipment, and a lot of times there there's a brand new green tractor in front of it as well. So, yeah, yeah. It's, remember seeing your
0: equipment there when we were uh, doing the Dealership of the Year program with them a few years back. So right here in the states,
1: how far does your distribution go? Probably the furthest east on a regular basis we get is Kansas, but primarily the Western U.S. That, and we're cherry picking, looking for new new dealer opportunities, but we're selective as to who we develop a relationship with. Most of our dealers have been with us for a very long time and we look at it as a partnership and want them to succeed with our product. And of course, that makes us successful too. Yeah.
0: Tell us about some of the history projects that you're working
1: on. Some things that you've you've found and as you're- uh, Oh yeah, so my great-grandfather being a Minneapolis Moline dealer, I've always kind of had an interest in some of the antique tractors. My brother-in-law restores John Deere's. I enjoy the Minneapolis Moline got a couple tractors. The one we have in our parts department, we'll take it to the county fair and parades and sometimes we've even hooked it up to that original Kirby feed wagon and taken it to some of the farm shows. In that front parts department, that building's got an old feel to it. So we're we're actually putting up an image of our original storefront of the, the tractor dealership and we've got an old Minneapolis Moline dealership sign, neon sign. I've got the dealership clock that was my great grandfather's. There's Minneapolis Moline on it. Old price books and some literature and different things that I've collected along the way, and some of it's left over from the dealership that survived. So putting together kind of a little history of the company and how it evolved over the years, and yes. gives our local customers something to look at whether wait for the guy to go repair a drive line or bring a bearing in, you know, from from the back. And it's it's been kind of a fun little project. And you've g-
0: gotten into some bidding wars on eBay
1: for some <laughs> 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 history. Tell us about that. Oh, it was funny, I was just Googling or searching eBay for Minneapolis Moline things and I I actually found a matchbook cover from probably the 40s that said Kirby Implement Company on it and it was in South Carolina. So who who knows how it got to South Carolina? So I put a hefty bid on it because I really wanted it and I was leaving town and couldn't watch the bidding. And when I came back, I was disappointed that I had lost out on the bid and sent an email to the seller and told him my story that I really wanted it because it was part of my great-grandfather's dealership. And he gave me the uh, email of the buyer who was up in Wisconsin or somewhere. And um, I sent him an email telling this whole story. And I think he was a little skeptic at first, you know, who's this crazy guy wanting to pay more for some piece of paper. And uh, I had some other moling artifacts that didn't relate to our, our dealership. And so I offered him twice the money and I would send him One of these other ones that i had and he took the deal so (laughs) i was able to preserve a little bit of kirby implement history and fun little project Mm
0: -hmm. glad to hear that the wisconsin folk played ball with you on that
1: one yeah but he again (laughs) someone was skeptical of who's this crazy person from california contacted me (laughs) as we've gotten into
0: some conversations like this several people comment that you can learn a lot more about a company, learn more lessons through their their failures than their successes. If you look back at a a really hard time for the company, and it it may have been before your day even, what comes to mind and what did you and your
1: company forever
0: learn from that experience?
1: Well, One thing that, you know, like any ag cycle, there's good times and bad times, and uh, dairy's not immune to it, and we're in one of those cycles right now, and one thing I learned that my uncle showed me long ago was we are a manufacturer, but one of our advantages is also being our own dealer in California. So we take trades, we'll refurbish them. And so we can take our production staff and move them into service and repairs because the need for feeding the cattle don't go away just because the milk price is down. And so if they're not buying new equipment, they're having to maintain their existing equipment because nobody's going back to feeding with a pitchfork. These herds are just too large. So, we'll shift production people into service and repairs and have good, available, used equipment for sale, and also be able to repair and maintain the existing equipment that the dairymen are using. And then, as things improve and new orders come in, we can start shifting those people back into production. So it's helped Kirby Manufacturing maintain a steady workforce, an experienced workforce, and they're ready and willing and able to go back to work, whichever side of the, the business that we need them on.
0: Was, was there a time that you can remember
1: or had your great uncle tell you about where the business had been in trouble? Actually, I have a personal experience with that. So, company's manufacturing started, like I said, in 1946. Uh, my grandfather died in 74. My uncle ran the business until I came involved with it in 1989, and I had inherited some shares from my grandfather I have a sister that had shares, my grandmother and uh, first cousin. None of them were really involved with the the day-to-day part of the business. My uncle, his kids really weren't involved with the company. And so as he got older and he gave shares to his children, and it was getting to the point where his grandchildren would start getting some shares, there was a lot of ownership that was diluted. That had no day-to-day interest in the business, and so talking with my wife Dana in 2009, we decided to put an offer into the family to buy the company, and everyone agreed on it, and so we did that, and then the dairy market <laughs>
2: fell time out. Time is so, everything. <laughs> yeah,
1: went home and looked at looked Dana and I and said, "What the heck did we just do?" You know, mm-hmm. so we got got our staff together and said, "Hey, you know, this this is not good. It's not good for our customers." It's obvious, you know. There's not a lot going on in the shop right now. Last thing I want to do is take all of our problems and dump them on five employees and tell them today's their last day. So I got the the staff together and um, said we can do this two ways and explain. You know, last thing I want to do is lay someone off and tell them that I haven't done my job and for being able to provide you a job. I said things will turn around. I, I know that in my heart and we can all work a little shorter during the week but keep our jobs keep our full benefits and we can make the same work and so we went through a period of there where we had some 32 hour work weeks and everybody shared a little bit less than their check but we kept everybody employed kept everybody's health insurance paid and weathered that storm and like I said we had a an experienced workforce ready to get back to work when uh, milk prices came back mm-hmm. up and then the orders started flooding in. So we learned a lot during that lean time and especially right after mm-hmm. uh, buying the company. And it's like, we can do this. Yeah. And, and we did. So,
0: What do you remember feeling as you were delivering that speech to the everyone out in the front of you?
1: I wasn't afraid about it because I'd, I'd worked side by side with a lot of these people. I'd grown up with a lot of them, learned how to weld from one of them. And like I said, it's, it's, it's a real family atmosphere there. We've had lots of fathers and son teams working at the same time. At one point, we had three generations of the same family, the son, the father, and the grandfather, all working at the shop and at the same time. And it makes me feel good to know that here, this man's worked for us for 20 years, 30 years, and he's at home telling his son, yeah, there's an opportunity there. They've been good to me, and it'd be a good opportunity for you. And, uh, One of our employees is with me today, and Jonathan Garcia. His dad, Loopy, worked for us for 35 years, and then he retired, and then he worked another 15 years for us. (laughs) So he died a couple years ago, and we still feel his loss, but he retired, and he was showing up every day, saying, hey, you got anything for me to do? You want me to deliver a trucker? Mm -hmm. So we put him back to work part-time and let him work as much or as little as he wanted, and he worked another 15 years. Mm -hmm and Jonathan he started in the shop working on the shear and he's doing all of our purchasing and inventory management now. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a lot of a lot of family stories like that. Yeah. You
0: weren't surprised by the reaction. You knew that how they were they were going to come along and they were in Yeah, this... I think
1: I think there was a little bit of dread <laughs> out in the shop and uh, everyone starts seeing things slow down and okay, when's the layoff coming? And uh, when I when I made that announcement, I think it was a big relief for everyone and and everyone wanted to to jump in and and do their part, so we all survived it together.
0: And that's a that says something because that's that's sacrifice for the the greater good of the team, all their teammates and yep. everything. Right? What does the rest of the United States maybe not realize about the California ag market? Take the opportunity to talk to us
1: back east about what California ag. <laughs> well, like. What I'm excited about is when someone comes out to California for the first time or maybe their experience with California has been limited to going on a trip to Disneyland or a beach in San Diego. And they finally get to the Central Valley and they see how diverse the agriculture really is. We have over 400 different crops grown there regularly. And it's just amazing. And I tell people, I can pick a meal from my office to my home. And I know most of the farmers between my office and my house, you know? There's bell peppers being grown on one side of the road and tomatoes on the other and sweet corn and it's almonds and grapes and walnuts. I pass that every day. And uh, it's a pretty, pretty amazing place. Politics stink, but the rest yeah. of it, rest <laughs> is pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Everyone in our industry should get out there at some point and, and see what that's yeah, like.
1: Yeah, you learn a lot. And that's what's really interesting about the World Ag Expo show in Tulare. It's always the second Tuesday of February each year. As I tell people, it's really the A to Z of agriculture, from asparagus planters to zucchini pickers, you know, it's 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 all there. It's just equipment that will never be used in Kansas, you'll never use it in Vermont, but there's some really innovative stuff being used in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we were out there, we t- took the
0: staff out there to uh, see the Kern camp machinery right. people. We'd seen equipment we'd never seen before out there. It was, it was it was cool. You know, I've had the pleasure of meeting Dana and your two girls, Morgan and Meredith. And what do you think the future for Kirby manufacturing looks like in the next, next 50 years?
1: I plan on working as long as I can because it's something that I really enjoy doing. My daughters currently don't have any interest in manufacturing, but that could change or I could someday end up with a son-in-law that does, or I might have a enterprising uh, staff member that wants to, to take a little bit of ownership interest in it. So we'll, we'll see what the future holds but I plan on sticking around quite a bit longer and and the one thing I, I really enjoy by going to work every day is the staff that we have, the long-term relationships internally in the company, but getting out and uh, seeing the customers and I've made some great friends that are also happen to be customers. so it's a win-win. Thanks to Rick for his personal
0: story, and also to Osmondson Manufacturing for supporting these and the upcoming recordings. For more, visit www.osmonson.com. Thanks for joining us today. Till next time, I'm Mike Lester of Farm Equipment Magazine, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipments Entrepreneurs.